Good morning, and I welcome you to our service this morning. Very interesting and and uh, much needed Sunday school lesson. Drawing near to God, walking humbly, so on. Turn with me to John 18 this morning. We, uh, as you well know, this is what is known as Independence Day. I'm sure that hasn't escaped anybody. And the title of this message this morning is Independent or Free, Which? We're going to read a few verses here in John 18. John 18, 29, we will start at verse 29 and read through to verse 37. This is Jesus' trial, very, very um, familiar verses. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. That's that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, saying, Answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Every one that is of the truth heareth my voice. I'll turn over to chapter 19. And verse 8, breaking into the middle of things here, but uh, I think you know the context. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went out and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all except against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And now let's go to verse 19. And this is uh, an account of Pilate's little epitaph over the cross. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is a very, as I mentioned before, very familiar um, account. We have an interchange here between Jesus, who was a king of kings and lords of lords, and a frustrated Roman political leader. And this leader, Pilate, 
I can, you can just sense the frustration through the, the entire account here. He has this person that was brought in and accused of something that I believe Pilate was quite sure he had not committed. And he has this Jesus standing there, which uh, with what he was accused of and the way he was responding to that accusation did not line up to what I think Pilate would have expected out of a person that would have been accused of such. And um, so we have this we have this helpless Jesus here, and at least the way it would look, who tells Pilate at one point, whenever Pilate flaunts his power a little bit, he says, you have no power except it were given to you of God. And I just really believe that that kicked Pilate back on his heels. I think that that stunned him. I don't think he was expecting that. And... Uh, but I think Pallet knew that what this man was saying was true. I really do. And finally, Pallet is this, is this, he comes across as this very weak political figure that couldn't actually stand up for truth. The truth gets talked about here at times. Pallet has that little uh, interchange with Jesus about what truth is and, and so on. But finally, when, when Pallet writes that little sign and puts it on the cross, the Jews come and say, hey, we don't like the way that was written. And he goes, tough. That's what I wrote. It's almost like Pilate finally at the very last, he's like, I want to be the man that has it my way. This, uh, th- These particular chapters, these verses, is um, very much where we as non-politically participating Christians draw our, our thoughts, our premise, for not being involved in the kingdoms of this world. It's interesting, in in verse 35, Pilate says to Jesus, he goes, your own nation has delivered you to me. And and Jesus turns around and and virtually says, that's not true, because my kingdom is not of this world. So today, we are here as Christians on Independence Day, when our nation knows it's Independence Day. What should you and I make of this? You know, living in this country has been very good for God's people. Quote, quotation marks, maybe I should say. You know, what can we point to a time? I don't know. I didn't really research this. But is there ever been a time in the course of church history where we've had virtually 250 years of a very peaceful existence for God's people And not only have we existed peacefully, but we have prospered in this peace that we've lived in. Very much, very much prospered. And we have probably, I would contend, prospered even more than our non-Christian counterparts because in our, in our attempt, in our, in our pursuit of living, uh, godly lives, it has freed us from much vice that the world knows. Life is full of a lot of vice for a lot of people. And vice costs money, and it costs... Um, well, I'll stop there. We're talking about material things, and it does. You, you think about it. The very fact that we, we choose to live as husband and wife for life is a monetary asset to us. It is. 
You look at people, I know people that have been divorced multiple times, and they are not very financially well off. It costs a lot of money. So, I mean, don't use that as your reason to stay with your spouse, please. But I'm just pointing out that because we we live godly lives, it has more than just spiritual benefit. It actually plays over and spills over into the physical world. There's benefits that we don't even think of sometimes. And so... It puts it puts us as Christians as at a um, at a place where we're at an advantage, I would say, for for what we have experienced in this country. But I have a question: Are we at a spiritual advantage for living in the U.S.? Are we spiritually advantaged? Does the North Korean or the China the Chinese that Christian that's perhaps sitting in prison? This morning and suffering immensely for his faith, are we spiritually advantaged over him? And I think we would have to conclude that we can't say that we are. We cannot say that we are. In the eyes of God, we must ask ourselves this question. As a Christian, does it make any difference if I live in Iraq or China or Russia or the UK or Mexico or the US? Am I better or worse off spiritually because I was not born somewhere else? So I would just like to um, go through this morning, and I would like to help us once again to look objectively at how God views the nations of the world, how he works with the nations of the world, and how we as as Christians fit into this. And then at the, the my very last point is if we want to celebrate freedom, I have some freedom I want you to celebrate this morning. But you have to wait to the very end to get to that. So I would like to um, to explore this question as my first point. Why do earthly nations exist? All right? So what is, why are they here? If you would, turn with me to Genesis 10. I, my, the first question that came to my mind is, well, where did nations start? I mean, you know, we started with two people. When did we begin to have this thing of, like, nations? In Genesis 10, uh, verse 8, it goes like this. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Arak, and Akhed, and Kalna, in the lands of Shinar. All right. So we have this this man Nimrod that established some cities. And I think it's safe to assume that if you have a city you had some sort of civil authority, some sort of um, government uh in these in these particular cities. Now, it's interesting that it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now again, I'm at a very, I'm very disadvantaged because I'm reading to you out of an English translation and I have to go with what it says here. I was doing some reading on this because if this man, as I read, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, it would almost make it sound like he had some kind of a blessing from the Lord or that the Lord recognized this, this man and his mightiness and his hunting. Um, apparently, uh, in, in our translations, some of the thought may have gotten lost. There are, there are some that would say that perhaps this would better read, he was a mighty hunter against the Lord. 
Okay. So perhaps it's more that he was a mighty hunter and the Lord recognized that. Okay. But it wasn't necessarily that he was a hunter for the Lord. We find then if we go to chapter 11, and we won't read this, this is the, the account of the Tower, Tower of Babel, but it was through the inhabitants of the world under Nimrod that they, that the, the inhabitants decided to, to make a name for themselves. If you go to 11 and 12, then back in chapter 10, it says, now out of that land, out of the lands here that it's referring to the previous verses, went forth another man by the name of Asher, and he built Nineveh, the city of Rehoboth, and Kala. All right? And then verse 12, and resin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. So it seems like Nimrod's establishment of cities spurred this or inspired this other man, Asher, to start some cities too. Now, why am I saying all this? My point is this. I believe nations exist because it gives the pride of man a way to express itself, okay? And we understand this. I mean, all nations are prideful, all right? And they flaunt that. Um, anybody remember the MAGA hats? I hope none of you own any of those. Make America great again. Uh, American pride. America first. Made in America. America. America's number one. What is that? I mean, would it be safe to say that perhaps that is a um, somewhat of a of a national pride coming through? And uh, if you would if you would go into other nations, I have no doubt that along the line you would find a spirit of pride there too, somewhere. And so, if you look at the at the Bible, if you just kind of leaf through the Bible, and I'm going to read you just a medley of verses here that speak over and over and over to the pride of nations. In Leviticus 26 and 19, this is God warning Israel, and he said this, I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. Isaiah 16, 6, We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud, even of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. Ezekiel 30, Thus saith the Lord, They... Also that uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down. From the tower of Syene shall they fall by the sword, saith the Lord God. Again in Ezekiel. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in, in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Zechariah 9. And a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Zechariah 10. And he shall pass through the sea of affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the earth shall dry up. The pride of Assyria shall be brought down. Can I stop there? I don't know that I got them all. But I was actually amazed myself as I went through the scripture how many times God speaks to the pride of nations. And he doesn't even let out the children of Israel. He said, you're proud too. And because of that pride, I'm going to destroy you. The summary of this can be found in Proverbs 16, 18. And this, this, this can apply to people. It can apply to churches. It can apply to nations. Pride goeth before destruction. Pride is not a trait that brings God's approval. 
and I, <clears throat> I could not help but think of old King Nebuchadnezzar, and he found that out the hard way. He spent uh, quite a number, quite a bit of time out eating grass until he was duly humbled. And once he got his sound mind back, he understood that he had been a proud man. Number two, nations exist because they are willing to defend their interests in any way that they must, and they will pursue any ungodly practice that they need to to do that. Going back to our friend Nimrod here in um, in Genesis, you will find in secular history that Nimrod was the first person who organized armies and perfected the art of war. Again, if we go through those those um, those verses that I just read to you about the pride of nations, Assyria, Philistia, um, these different ones that, that we talked about, take the Assyrian nation, extremely brutal. I, I uh, did a little bit of reading on how they would treat prisoners of war and people they took captive after they, they fought their wars. And I thought about reading to you what they did, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's just not appropriate for a Sunday morning. Just... Imagine some of the most heinous things that you can do to a person. Nothing was, nothing was off limits. That is the way nations defend themselves. They're willing to do whatever they need to do. And we can spend the rest of the morning pointing out the cruelty and the heinous acts of many nations um, during times of war and even not during times of war. Uh, people that were suspected of political... Um, um, being politically against the nation they lived in and so on. Um, a very recent, a recent, uh, nation that we're all very familiar with was Nazi Germany. Um, horrendous, terrible things that happened under, uh, Hitler's regime, as with the Soviet Union and currently even in China and Korea. And I would like to point out that we, we look at these things and we know about these particular events because they've been well documented and they've been, um, we understand that. We understand what happened. But because we live here in the U.S. where there has been perhaps a bit of restraint put on that kind of thing, we don't understand that in the deep, dark corners of, military, of the U.S. military, bad things happen as well. And people that are willing to talk and know these things and disclose these things uh, can tell you stories that are equally shameful. And... Um, I, I point that out not to necessarily um, make any point other than the point that I want to make, that all nations operate from the same premise. And that is, if they have to in, involve themselves in cruelty and uh, other types of human horrors, they're, will, they, they're willing to go there if they feel like that's in the interest of their nation. Number three, <clears throat> nations exist because of the need to put some restraint on evil that man will engage in if organized physical restraint is not in place. I will point to Romans 13. We won't turn there, but I will point there for um, a, um, a passage that makes that point clearly. Why do they exist? They are ministers of God to punish the evildoer and to praise the people that do well. It's very clear there. Speaking in very broad generalities here, uh, John 1 points out that there, every man is born with a light, okay? So even the most, um, even the most un, un, uh, godly person, there's, there's, there's an inner light that he's born with, 
that he knows that he probably shouldn't go out and kill somebody, that he shouldn't take something from another person. Now, I don't know how that all works, but we're all given that, that inner light to work with initially. But if there is not some kind of a machinery in place to enforce that, that can quickly go downhill, very quickly. And it's also interesting that I would dare say all nations manipulate their laws to fit to its society's current moral code rather than true godly morals. Now, let me explain this a little bit. Let's just use our own country as an example. So if you go back to the mid-1800s, early to mid-1800s, um, there was a discussion about whether uh, the, the, uh, the slave trade, the use of slaves, was a godly thing. Godly people did not participate in that, okay? I would, I, I'm, I'm saying that very broadly. There would be some religious people that would have, but the people that really were interested in, in uh, serving God acceptably did not participate in slavery. But it was the societal norm, okay? Was that godly? Well, we probably conclude it probably was not. However, in those times, there was much of society that would have had perhaps a, a godly things that would that would we would approve of and say would have a godly premise. So back in those days, abortion would have been illegal. Okay, and we would have said that well, that's a good thing. There would have been much more modest dress and so on and so on. So today, it's quite the opposite. Abortion is legal. Slavery has been outlawed. Okay. In the sixties, sodomy was illegal. Today, it's not only legal, it is lifted up as like um, something to be to aspire to. Now my, my, now, my point is, you see how society's norms change. And that is, that is the way societies work. Um, it's lamentable that it, it feels like that in many ways, this country that we have lived in, that we live in, the, the societal normals have deteriorated. But the question we have to ask is, why have they deteriorated? Have they deteriorated because the salt and the light that are supposed to be the, the keepers of society has deteriorated as well? And that would be why some Christians would make the case that Christians need to be involved in government. And I'm not going to go there because that's not my topic this morning, but I would just quickly point out that I think it can be safely said that any attempt where that has been made to bring Christian morals into government has been a dismal failure because you have to resort to human ways of perpetuating that godliness, and it doesn't work. That's why Jesus said, my kingdom simply is not of the world. And that's why Paul says we don't fight with carnal things. We do it a different way. But back to our point, I would say that even in the most wanting societies, probably we're better off with some form of government than pure anarchy. And that maybe would be a, um, that maybe could use more discussion. Uh, and I'm not sure that I'm ready to say that blanketly. Because, which is worse, living in a, living in a, a terrible country where 
evil is good and good is evil, or living in anarchy, could be questionable. But I'm going to say, based on the on the on scripture, it feels like in God's eyes we're better off with government, no matter how poor it is handled, than pure anarchy. We'll leave that one. Number four, <clears throat> nations exist <clears throat> to bring judgment on other nations. Now that's an that's an interesting concept. But just think about the history of, of the world. Think about through the Old Testament, New Testament, even up to our times. How many times another nation has rose up and conquered another one um, for reasons that motivations differed, but it happened. Big, big, um, powerful nations have been trounced by other nations and brought to nothing. In Isaiah 45, 1, I'm just going to read this verse. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus... And if you remember, Cyrus was a, a Persian king whose right hand I have holden sub, to subdue nations before him. And I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates, and the gates shall not be, shall not be shut. Now I'm, I'm just reading that first verse. It goes on to say how Cyrus was raised up of God to punish the nation of Israel. Okay? Isaiah 10. Listen to this. O Assyria. The rod of mine anger and the staff in thine hand is my indignation. Basically, God's saying, you are my tool right now, Assyria. Okay? If you go down seven more verses in verse 12 of chapter 10, Wherefore it shall come to pass, that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, in other words, once Assyria is done punishing Israel, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart, or we could say the proud king, of the king of Assyria, and the glory of his high looks. Okay, so once I'm done using Assyria for my tool, I'll find another nation to come in and take care of Assyria. Just this morning, um, I happened to be reading in 1 Kings 20 about how King Ahab, who was a seriously wicked king, said he did more evil than all the kings before him. God gave him the power to overcome the Syrians because the Syrians had scoffed the name of the Lord, and the Lord would not allow his name to be scoffed. And so Ahab, in all his ungodliness, was able to overcome the Syrians because of the name of the Lord. Again, another illustration of nations being used of God to bring judgment on other nations. Now, I would just like to give this caution. It is somewhat easy for us to look back, in, in, in the Bible especially, and in more ancient history, and we can see the hand of the Lord moving, nations rising, nations falling, and so on and so on. But I would, I would suggest that that probably is better looked at from a long range than a short range. And I think we can very quickly get into the weeds if we begin to look around us today and we begin to predict or, or determine in our minds that this nation is doing this and this one is doing this and this is God doing this and that. It could be. I mean, God is de definitely involved in the nations of the world and in the details of that. But to to speculate on how the current events are working out or will not work out now or in the future, I wonder if that's not better just left to the hands of God. An analysis of, of history surely documents that great empires rose and they fell. And many times, if not always, it always was preceded by a decline in morals, pride, conceit, and selfishness of the populace before it fell. 
So we'll leave that one for now. Nations exist to bring judgment on other nations. Number five, nations exist to be a haven for the people of God. Now you think about how many times that has happened through history. Both Jacob and Abraham went to Egypt whenever there was a famine in their land and they found sustenance in Egypt. And the entire world uh, found sustenance in Egypt during that great famine in Joseph's time. And the Israelites for 400 years found a haven in Egypt as they prospered and multiplied and got ready for that that um, exodus into Canaan. And before they went, it says they spoiled the Egyptians. In other words, they went to their Egyptian neighbors and said, hey, can I have your gold and silver? And they said, sure, sure, you know, just take it. you know. And, and he spoiled them and he took off with it. It was God using nations to be a haven for for his people. David, for a time, fled to the Philistines for a place of refuge when Saul was chasing him. Um, Joseph and Mary sheltered in Egypt for a time uh, when Jesus was small. I would even suggest that while Israel was punished by Babylon, in some ways they were also sheltered in Babylon. They could have been taken captive by the Assyrians or some other very vicious country and been completely annihilated like the, the ten lost tribes. But they were not. They were uh, they were taken to Babylon and they were sheltered there. And then 70 years later, they were allowed to go back. It was, it was a punishment and at the same time a shelter in disguise. And I would even suggest that Rome was a shelter to the early church. The very earliest years of the church, Rome only recognized it politically as another Jewish sect. And so initially, it did not persecute the church. It... It actually ignored it, basically. And because of the road infrastructure and all that stuff, the gospel spread very quickly. Likewise, during um, during the Dark Ages, um, I won't go into that, but there was, there was always pockets, there was countries here and there, where if a person or peoples were interested in finding a refuge for the, to practice their faith, they could generally find it. It wasn't always easy, but generally there was pockets somewhere that would uh, serve as a refuge. And I would say that America has been a refuge for many, many persecuted people. Um, we ourselves are here today because our forefathers were looking for a place that they could practice their conscience. And um, I'll just leave that at that, but that has, been the, that has been the story of a lot of people over a great many years. But now I have a challenge for us. The day could come, possibly, that that could change. And we could need to find ourselves um, looking for shelter somewhere else. Jesus talks about that. You know, when you when they persecute you in one city, flee to another. And I think we need to at least be mindful enough of that to think about if that possibility would come, what would I compromise? Would I compromise my faith or would I compromise my nice house? Which one would go? There's a prime example of that in the late 1800s when the Russian Mennonites that had been promised religious freedom were suddenly had some of those freedoms withdrawn from them, particularly participation in the military. When that happened, there was, there was quite a number of Russian Mennonites at that time emigrated to North America. But there was quite a few that did not. They enjoyed the comforts of Russia way too much. They had, um, they had uh, experienced a lot of material wealth and increase in, in that 80 years or so that they had been there. So they chose to stay because they didn't want to give up 
that good life. Well, the, the ones that came over to North America early, that, that was a hardship. That wasn't easy, and, um, and, and so on. We, we understand that. But the ones that stayed suffered horrendous persecution under the Bolshevik Revolution and the communist takeover of Russia. I just share that to say that we need to be, we need to be people that understand our times and are willing to make changes no matter how hard they are if that's asked of us. Let's move on to the second point here now. I would just like to take an honest look at how nations are portrayed in the Bible and how we as Christians should relate to them. So we looked at why they exist. Now let's look at how they're portrayed in the Bible. Again, I'm going to point to Romans 3, we're not going to, or Romans 13, we're not going to point there, or go there, turn there, but the powers that be are ordained of God. Very, very simple language, very easy to understand. And I would also just point out that as hard as this is to understand, it's not just the good nations that are ordained of God, it says the powers that be. So if I live in China this morning and I read this passage, I have to conclude that for some reason, the powers that are over me exist because God put them in place. And I'm not saying we have to understand that, I'm just saying we have to accept that. We are duly instructed, number two, in First Peter and in Titus, that we need to submit to and honor the authorities to the extent that they don't ask us to do something that interferes with our Christianity. Very easy to understand. Now, how that gets interpreted at times can be interesting, but it is, an, it is a clear call. But the third point now that I'd like to um, maybe spend just a little bit more time on is that generally speaking, in the scriptures, the nations are portrayed as evil. And I'm going to just read to you some scriptures here. In Mark 13, 9, Jesus talking to his disciples, Take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to the councils and in the synagogues, and ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. Okay? So uh, that verse just immediately has this feeling that there's going to be a locking of horns, a testimony against them. Matthew 24, 9, Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. I don't think I need to enlarge on that. Turn with me to Daniel 10. This is a very interesting one that I, that I just came across in my study. I think it's worth looking at. Daniel 10. Daniel had a lot of visions and so on here in, uh, in, the, in the latter part of the book of Daniel that we don't completely understand, but I'm just going to read to you verses 12, 13, and 14. This is, this is an angel talking to Daniel. Then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the king of Persia. And now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. Is anybody willing to stand up and give a exegesis on those three verses? I'm not. But there's one thing that becomes clear to me by reading these three verses. 
It talks about the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and that prince was something extraterrestrial. It was not something earthly. And there was some sort of a fight between this angel and this prince that the the angel, the good angel now, could not get past this prince, this evil force, whatever it was. And it, it stalled this angel for getting to, to Daniel for 21 days, it said. And finally, Michael comes from wherever he is, and he came over and he fought with this angel, and he overcame so that that angel could could come on to Satan, or to Daniel. All right? I don't understand that. But would it be safe to deduct? Would it be safe? Or right, I'll just throw this out for your consideration. Is it possible that all nations have some sort of a prince, evil force that's in the background, and there's 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 this duking it out between the good and the evil? I don't think that is necessarily out of line to, to think that that could be the case. It talks about the prince of the power of the air. Paul talks about that. So I just point out that these forces, these evil and good forces behind the scenes, I think are, I think it's way more than what we know. And if there's some evil prince of the kingdom of Persia that could withstand a messenger of God for 21 days, it must be pretty powerful stuff. I point to Ephesians 6, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against rulers of the darkness of the world. Another translation puts it like this, against the world rulers of this present darkness. Okay? So it assumes that we live in present darkness and that the world rulers are a part of that present darkness against spiritual wickedness in high places. Luke 13, 31, And the same day came certain Pharisees, saying to him, Get thee out, this is Jesus, talking to Jesus, and depart from hence, for Satan will kill thee. Jesus said to them, Go you and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. There's a lot we could talk about there, but there's one point I want to pull out. He called Herod a fox. Is a fox a cuddly you know, we kind of think of him as a pet, right? A fox? No, not really. A fox, immediately, we think of someone that's cunning, sly, uh, sneaky, and does not have your best interest in mind. He would like your chickens. Okay? That's a fox. We, we think of manipulation. We think of coercion. We think of half-truths half that are often given to us from governments, and the folks that are in high places. And I think we can see the, the relationship between the foxes and the, uh, and the rulers of the days. Turn to Revelation 11 now for my last point in this section. Again, this is an extremely interesting passage. And again, I'm not prepared to give you all the ins and outs of this, but we are going to read 11 verses here. And there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall be tread underfoot forty and two months. 
And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. So now pay attention to that. There's power given to two witnesses, and they were God's witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. All right, this is quite a commentary on these uh, these two witnesses here in verse 3. Verse 7, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast, Satan, that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. Now, if I didn't have any explanation for the last reading, I have even less for this one. A lot of symbols and so on here in the book of Revelation, but I'm going to... I'm going to suggest something to you that I got out of my reading, which made sense to me, okay? So the two witnesses, um, this is in the the estimation of the writer that I was reading, who is not, it is not out of this inspired book, it's someone's commentary, I, I get that, but I'm going to suggest this to you. The two witnesses could, could perhaps represent the church and the Holy Spirit. And if you read down through those verses that we that we read after verse 3, you see how there's tremendous power. These, these witnesses did tremendous things. And if you remember, in Luke 10, 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding, and this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Basically, Jesus is saying, you will not be able to be harmed spiritually. It's going to be amazing what you will be able to do in my name. And, and we, and we know that. We look at, we look at church history, look at especially early church history, and we see the, the absolute power that the, that the church had. Alright? So then verse 7 and 8 speaks of a time that, that this power is taken away from the church um, apparently, if we're gonna, if we're going to call these witnesses, one of the two witnesses, the church, it feels like the reading would suggest that a time comes when that power is taken away, and literally, they end up being dead bodies in the street that nobody even takes, takes and buries, okay? It's there for all to see. This writer suggests that this could perhaps be the, the time that we currently live in where Churches at large have pretty much caved into the ways of the world. Uh, and we know that. We won't enlarge on that. But it is, it is disgusting, it is appalling what many, 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 almost all churches now accept 
as the uh, as the gospel. It is anything but the gospel. So it is by it is by it's dead. Okay, it's lying in the streets, dead. It's not like we can't see churches. It's not like we can't hear people that say I belong to a church. But the power is stripped. It is virtually dead. Okay. And the dead bodies lie in the streets, and it says four cities. It says it talks about the great city. Now, the great city, if you would look in the rest of Revelation, the great city would be Babylon, okay? And then it talks about Sodom and Egypt and where also our Lord was crucified, which would be Jerusalem. And if you look at the symbolism of Babylon... It's idolatry, pleasure, intellectual enlightenment, Sodom, depravity and wickedness to the extreme, Egypt, lust, comforts, temptations, Jerusalem, spiritual hypocrisy, decay and faithlessness. Now my point, let's summarize this. My point is the nations of the world were successful in this reading at getting rid of the church through these these things that the great cities had to offer. Through the pleasures, idolatries, wickedness, uh, moral depravity, lust, comforts, you get it. Spiritual hypocrisy. And it all came through these nations of the world. Let's summarize by saying this. The nations of the world here are portrayed as corrupt to the core and under the influence of Satan and not for the people of God. And they have some limited success in actually working against the church to the point that the church becomes almost, as it says here, dead in the streets. All right, let's go to the last point. With all this information now, how shall we live? I'll make this brief. We should understand that all nations fundamentally function on the same premise. And that's been hard for us because we we have been somewhat taught or we have uh, at least embraced the idea that the U.S. is a Christian country. That's that's bandied about. Is it a Christian country? Well, let, let's just say this. To the extent that there has been built into the Constitution some general principles, some general rights that we enjoy and that has been a clear advantage to live in a quiet and peaceable life, There are blessings that we have realized as Christians that are not realized in other countries, all right? Proverbs does say that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And so principally what that saying is, good laws do make for happy people, okay? But in reality, if you would read about the founding of this country, we would have to conclude that it was, again, very much based on pride and rebellion against legitimate authority. And we would also have to conclude that there was many offenses and atrocities that were committed by the initial Continental Army that, if we knew about them, would be shocking. Okay? If you have the time and you want to, you can buy this book that's called Twas Seating Time, a, Men- a Mennonite View of the American Revolution, written by John Ruth. And he's a historian, and he writes this book very much from the perspective of a, of a non-resistant Christian. And he methodically goes through what the non-resistant peace churches during the time of the rebellion in the late 1700s had to endure because of the rebellion. When you read that, 
you must conclude that if that is where you would identify yourself, if that's where you would have decided to cast your lot, and hopefully we would have, you would not have called the United States a Christian nation. You couldn't have. You couldn't have done it. And I would also say, well, I just want to point this out. In this book, and I'm sure it's recorded in other places, but George Washington himself was frustrated and appalled with the lack of manners and discipline in the American troops. He just couldn't believe it. It, it just it bugged him how, how ruthless they were and how, how low they would stoop. I think we need to make the, the difference between civil religion and true religion. Uh, it is true that most countries have a civil re- religion. We don't. We don't ascribe to civil religion. We dis- ascribe to true religion, as James points out. And I think we also would have to conclude that currently it's hard to point to anything in the political, the current political arena that we live in that would say that there's anything Christian to it. We know this. And it's it's sad that that both sides of the political party scene in today's world will stoop very, very low to promote their causes. All right, number two. Remember, too, that God's agenda doesn't require political parties. Okay? Now, that's that's... Let's think about that just a little bit. In our, in our current climate, we have, we have in our minds, I think it would be safe to say in all of our minds, if we had to divulge how we think, we think of the Democratic Party as very left-leaning, very anti-God, and we think of the Republican Party as maybe somebody that's a little bit more on our side, right? It's maybe how we think about it. But I'm afraid that where we are currently, both, both, both the Republicans and the Democrats are not necessarily on God's side, okay? And, I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why I, I think that. It is true that the Democratic Party in recent years, as the fruit of their agenda matures, it is very, it is very concerning to the cause of religious freedom. There's, there's no doubt about that. But currently, in the state of California, there is a transgender person who we used to know as Bruce Jenner, who is now currently known as Caitlyn Jenner, that is running, that wants to run for governor under the Republican ticket as a fiscal conservative and a social liberal, and he is getting a lot of support from conservative Republican people. Now that's confusing. But I point that out to say that to say that the Republican Party has God's interests in its mind, we're a little confused on that. God's, God's interest does not depend on political platforms. And I would say that as time moves on, we can expect that things will get more and more uncomfortable for a true Christian. You know, I think we will weaken our witness and the gospel if we tie it to a political party. And that's my fear for modern Christianity. They're tying the success of their Christianity to a political party, and I think it's going to end up being to their undoing. All right, last point. 
And here's where it gets to true freedom. Turn to John 8. We'll make this quick. This does not need much explanation. John 8, verse 31 to 36. Then Jesus, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Bottom line, there are many people today that are celebrating civil independence, the independence of this nation. That's their prerogative. However, at the same time, those same people that are drinking beer, living it up, and celebrating the the, uh, independence of this country are living in bondage, living bound to the shackles of sin, bound in unforgiveness, bitterness, unholy attitudes toward people, addictions, false accusations at people, lusts, unholy habits, a tongue that cannot be tamed, that spews out sharp words, material pursuits, etc., etc., etc. And you probably could attach a name to every one of those things that I just said. And yet they will declare that they are free. Jesus says, you're not free. You are not free. You are the servant of sin. He says, if the Son makes you free, you will be freed indeed. You know, true freedom can be experienced in the most oppressive country and in the most unpleasant circumstances. That's why Paul and Silas could sing in jail. That's why at this very moment, there could be people in jail today that have more freedom than you and I who live in a free country. That's very, very possible. I hope this has been helpful to you. I hope that we can be thankful that we live in a country that does allow us freedoms. That's not wrong. We're told to pray for quiet and peaceableness. But at the same time, if all we, if all the freedom we understand is living in a free country, we are bound. We are not free people. We're very, very, we are the servants of sin. And I hope that does not describe us today. I hope we have experienced true freedom as well as living in a free country.